AAA credit rating. Excessive volatility in the markets. The gross domestic product, or GDP. Where the deficit has come down by a quarter, we saw unemployment fall again. The FTSE 100 is currently up. And today's GDP is an important sign that the economy is headed in the right direction. These numbers were considerably worse than expected. You're listening to Pod Academy. I'm Alex Bird. Numbers have come to dominate our politics and our news cycle. GDP, inflation, CPI, RPI, credit ratings, the FTSE, debt-to-GDP ratios, discount rates, the list goes on. While politicians and commentators wield these numbers to justify their decisions and criticise their opponents, not everyone is convinced we should allow numbers to dominate our political discourse. Today, I'm talking to Lorenzo Fioramonti, the director of the Centre for the Study of Governance Innovation. He's the author of a new book, How Numbers Rule the World, The Use and Abuse of Statistics in Global Politics, and he began by explaining his thesis. You know, the main point of the book is that we have created a system of accounting, of calculations, of numerical production that is guiding all the decisions that we take as societies, that that, uh, dictates the choices that our policymakers take, dictates what we consider as being productive and not and, and not productive and so on and so forth. So it's like a meta-analysis, you know. Our policymakers and our economists are not so powerful as we think in terms of what decisions they take, or they are powerful and they find ways of justifying their decisions by using numbers that uh, give an appearance of neutrality to the decisions that they take so that the society um, can accept them often when they're hard and have a a severe impact on our well-being because these numbers somehow make these decisions look as if they were inevitable. They used to mask the motives of controversial decisions such as in Britain the recent spending cuts. Yes, yes, I would say that the whole austerity speak these days, especially in Europe, is, has been clocked under this, um, the power of these numbers uh, from GDP, which is often used as a way of um, curbing um, popular dissent against uh, certain pro-market decisions, because GDP is used to tell us that the only way for us to develop and to grow is by supporting um, certain sectors within the business community. And therefore, we need to be willing to take tough decisions, to reduce spending, to reduce our benefits and so on and so forth. And often, at the same time, while we do that, to pay for subsidies that go into the pockets of those who produce the apparent growth that is reflected in GDP. So all these numbers, and I could go on and on with other examples, are used in times of austerity to justify the difficult and unpalatable cuts that our governments are um, putting forward. A lot has been made of the fact that our Chancellor, George Osborne, is a politician and much of the people around him are politicians rather than having any real-world experience. And in this case, uh, George Osborne has no economic background at all. Is this a problem with numbers becoming more and more important? Well, it it is a problem to a certain extent. Um, Numbers are created by experts or technocrats, as I call them, right? So what happens is that when politicians that have been elected by citizens to take decisions in the name of social justice and redistribution and and collect well-being, use numbers without even understanding the methodological components of these numbers, then we have a double problem. We have a problem because those who execute decisions 
are doing so in the names of numbers they themselves do not even understand. So they become uh, even more dangerous uh, perpetrators, if you will, or executors of decisions they do not, they didn't even control themselves. So on the one hand, the politics of numbers has given a lot of power to technocrats. Some of these technocrats are behaving, sort of operating behind the scene. We don't see them. Some of them are, you know, um, executive directors within central banks. They are part of very powerful think tanks or investment banks and so on and so forth. Some of them then also play political roles. But often the policymakers, which are those taking the ultimate decisions, are influenced by a politics of numbers they themselves don't even understand. I see. You mentioned earlier that uh, one of the numbers you have a problem with is the continued use of GDP, which is why, when it's so flawed, is it still persisted with? Yes, GDP was invented 80 years ago, so it's important to remind everybody that this almighty number hasn't been around forever. It was created at a specific point in time. It was the Great Depression to provide some idea of how well markets were doing in the U.S., and it then was imposed by the Second World War and the system of, if you will, of um, Americanization of our economies in, in the post-war period, it was imposed all over the world, on Europe first, on Japan, on all the countries that had lost the war, and then eventually throughout the 70s and the 80s and the 90s on the rest of the so-called developing world. So this metric wasn't decided democratically, wasn't decided by statisticians in most countries around the world. It was created in a small think tank in the US, adopted by the US government as a policy tool to then be imposed on the rest of the world. This is really important because, you know, what we measure affects what we do. So if a country or a certain model of society, let me put it that way, is able to impose the ultimate metric of progress on other countries. Most of the job of influencing these countries' economic policies is already done. It becomes a very subtle process of simply influencing their tools and their thinking without even, have, without even having to impose certain choices on these countries. So the globalization of the GDP system was a very powerful a political tool for a certain model of economic progress to colonize the rest of the world. And nowadays, it's virtually everywhere. Um, there aren't any country, actually, I'm not aware of any country around the world that in a way or another doesn't use GDP as the ultimate metric of progress. Even Bhutan and some of these countries that had adopted alternative metrics do so only has side metrics, still use GDP as their main metric of economic development, especially to attract foreign direct investment and so on and so forth. Why is it still around? It's still around because of the fundamental impact that it had in our societies. I mean, among many characteristics of GDP, GDP has the capacity to mask the real costs of economic growth, including the environmental, the social, and the human costs of what we produce because it doesn't consider those costs. So they disappear, they never calculated and portrays any activity that is um, creating income within the formal economy as productive. Even when these activities may be damaging, may be uh, harmful to society and therefore being also economically unproductive in the end because we're gonna have to pay the costs of all the side effects and the negative externalities. So GDP somehow is the, the only reason why we're preserving an economic system that is highly unequal, highly centralized, 
and it gives certain powerful corporations the power to affect the decisions all over the world. If we were to take GDP out, all of a sudden, a lot of our productive systems, from the way in which we use energy, for instance, think of the oil industry, the coal industry, all these polluting industries, all of a sudden, wouldn't be seen as productive anymore. Because if we start calculating the cost of how much damage they cause, and the fact that taxpayers will have to pick up those costs at some stage, you may very end up that we realize that, for instance, the coal industry is not viable. It's financially actually a loss. And this is a really dangerous prospect for those who want to perpetuates the type of economic system that we have. You mentioned that Bhutan uses, or countries like Bhutan use alternatives to GDP, and you'd like to see um, an alternative used. What what would you suggest using instead? Yes, um, as I've said, it is unfortunate that even those countries that are trying seriously to move beyond GDP are doing so in a way that is not courageous enough, if you will. So um, this is not to um, um, sort of um, disregard the importance of some of these new initiatives and these new attempts, but we always have to realize that the grip of GDP on our societies and our political systems is much more, it's much stronger than we think. It's not just a metric. It's the number that designs the way in which our societies operate, okay? How we spend time with our families, how we spend time with, you know, at work, the work-life balance, and so on and so forth. All of it is basically filtered by GDP. Now... Yeah, how do you mean that it affects the work-life balance in the fact that because we place so much value on producing at work rather than paying attention to the cost it may have on our families? Exactly, that's a very good example. I mean, um, if, if you have a job nowadays all over the world, especially in the UK or in the US, um, every time you take leave uh, to look after your kids, or if a woman is pregnant, or if, if, if a husband decides to take paternity leave, that is seen by society as, a, as something that is perhaps necessary but evil for the economy, right? So we consider that as something that is given to citizens, but the economy will suffer during the period because you don't go to work. So basically GDP tells us that the time we spend in the office is productive, the time we spend at home isn't, which is a fundamentally flawed way of looking at it. Not just because this time we spend at home is important per se, even if it wasn't unproductive, but it's actually very productive. Because this time there is research that shows, for instance, that kids that grow up in healthy families, that have enough time to spend with their parents and parents that interact with the kids, tend to have a healthier life, live longer, are less likely to become criminals, are less likely to get sick, and are much more likely to do well at school. Now imagine a society in which this doesn't happen, you would have increasing costs. Even from a very from a very financial economic point of view, increasing costs in terms of having to, you know, like uh, strengthen the schooling system in order to make up for whatever is not happening in the family, having to build new prisons because we know that kids that grow up in broken households or without their parents tend to be more likely to commit crime or to join criminal organizations and so on and so forth. So it has a huge economic cost, and I think. The Americans are realizing this, and in a country like the one in which I live, South Africa, this has become such an important issue. The idea of simply separating people and relegating them to formally productive activities is making society realize that in the short, even in the short term, but definitely in the medium to long term, um, the chickens are coming uh, coming back to roost, you know, coming home to roost, so like they're their expenses are becoming extremely significant for the state and for society to make up for what families were not able to do themselves. So 
this is a very small example, but the same can be said about the way in which we uh, build infrastructure. GDP tells us that big infrastructure, infrastructure that is expensive is a good thing for society, regardless of its environmental impact. And then you wonder why our policymakers are always looking after big projects, big initiatives, you know, you know, significant, uh, very expensive um, um, infrastructure um, projects that will boost the economy in the tremendous and terrible social and environmental impacts. Uh, the proliferation of shopping malls. Uh, why? Because shopping malls tend to concentrate costs in specific areas. Uh, you have to drive to go to shopping mall, which means you spend money on oil, you spend money on buying a car, you spend money when you get there, you need air conditioning because you don't have windows, it's additional money that goes into it. Shopping mall is a GDP paradise. That's why we have so many shopping malls these days. In the past, we used to have shops, small communities, people would walk around for free, you know, take a stroll and go and perhaps buy something, but even just taking, you know, taking a walk. That is not good for GDP. And then you wonder why, you know, public spaces are disappearing. So this is a, it's a very profound impact on how we run our societies, how we design our cities, how we organize our life. So how do you, how do you see that we got to this position? It seems that kind of this growth of metric-based and business-based politics seemed to spring up in the 80s as capitalism took hold of the Western world and the alternatives in socialism and left-wing politics seem to die away. Is it something as left and right as that, or is it something else? It isn't. Um, I make it very clear in my books that GDP was as significant for capitalism as it was for socialism. Here, it's not the usual traditional socialism versus capitalism discussion. Um, even though the Soviet Union initially used a different system of um, measurement of economic performance, which was, in my view, even worse than GDP. It was called the material product and only looked at um, in heavy industrial production as being a sign of progress. So if you will, from an environmental perspective, it was even worse than GDP. Um, but in any case, GDP has strengthened systems of, ec of economic development that are highly centralized and only look at the type of income that is generated as the ultimate um, as the ultimate parameter of success. So this can be, this is happening in capitalist societies, it's happening in socialist societies just in the very same, in the very same manner, China being an example. So here it's not socialism versus capitalism, it's, if you will, a top-down economic system in which only money has a certain type of money, because not all money, but only money that is produced within the formal economy um, of, if you will, uh, conventional industrialization models counts, and whatever else doesn't count. And, uh, and this is basically the issue state here, that we need to decide whether in the age of climate change, in the age of financial turbulence and economic recession, in the age of uh, out-of-control social and economic inequality, we still believe in a system that is based on a number that tells us that what makes money now formally is the only thing that counts regardless of its uh, economic, social and environmental impacts on our societies. There is a fundamental disequilibrium between our, if you will, um, uh, general political goals in the world of fighting climate change, of restoring, of re restoring social justice and somehow addressing income inequality and so on and so forth, and how our economies have been designed. I see. And 
So you speak about how what you're seeking to measure is more of a long-term way of looking at society and how we measure success. But is the, is the short-termism at the moment, is that a product of the democratic system where governments need to be able to get quick results and have the numbers to prove that they've got the results in order to win elections and stay in power? Well, I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, nobody disputes the importance of politicians doing what people want. I mean, provided that there was a clear thing that people want. But um, nobody's ever discussed whether GDP was what people wanted. Nobody's ever said, uh, nobody ever discussed whether the type of policies that are um, actually um, carried out in the name of GDP are what uh, people really want. So uh, I would say that we need to democratize even more. We need to democratize statistics, if you will. So since statistics influence what we do, we need to have a meta discussion here. What are the statistics that really tell us something about the ultimate objectives that we want to take as a society? Now, GDP was invented in 1934. That was a very different society. At that time, very few people cared about the environment. Very few people even considered the fact that the environment may be a public good. At that time, very few people even thought about gender issues. Very few people even thought about social justice issues. At that time, you know, like the whole world was very different, and GDP specifically. I mean, it's interesting. Even the architects of GDP, Simon Kuznets and his team in the U.S., those who invented the first national income accounts, raised the objections for the very first time. They said, "Okay, here is a number that we should use only now and in the short term to get a sense of how our formal economy is, is, is doing, but we shouldn't use this number for a prolonged period of time, and definitely this number should not be adopted in other societies. Of course, they were immediately forgotten, because policymakers and technocrats took the number, it was really useful for their own political agendas, and decided to use it beyond the reasons and the boundaries with, for which it was, it was designed. Okay, and the same can be said nowadays about a huge variety of, of other numbers that we use. Um, how we measure inflation, how you know the so-called consumer price index was invented in 1913. I mean, have we ever considered the possibility that perhaps the way in which we measure inflation is simply outdated? That are uh, nowadays, you know, even the way in which uh, we consider prices and costs and how households have to bear these costs is very outdated. It doesn't really reflect the way in which we we understand living costs. And of course, statisticians tell us all the time that the consumer price index and inflation um, measurements are not measurements of living costs. But politicians don't know that. The media, the journalists don't know that. So they tell us that inflation measurements are. Uh, a good parameter to understand whether we're rich or whether we're poor. And often the opposite is true. This is very true in the UK, where some decisions were recently taken because inflation went down. So policymakers had a good excuse to say, you know what, we can cut spending even more because our households are richer than they were a few months back. But if you look at the fine print, the way in which you measure inflation in the UK, is based on certain baskets of goods and services that households have to purchase. But it doesn't ever tell us how many of these goods and services you buy. So uh, it would be probably getting into the details would require a longer debate. But the importance is always to look at how these numbers are generated because their political impacts are enormous. So in countries, to go back to your question, 
in countries that want to move beyond GDP, where we're trying to build social and political awareness um, on GDP and the other metrics that we use to design our policies and to enact uh, reforms, we're trying to say, what is that we really want in the 21st century? What type of developments do we want? And then we argue that the type of developments that we want, but this is false, it's up for discussion, will be something that is compatible with environmental preservation and so that we can fight and reduce the impacts of climate change that is um, more socially equitable. I mean, uh, even the World Economic Forum, I mean, the, um, you know, like um, top echelons of global capitalism have agreed that rampant inequality is bad for everybody, it's bad for business too. So we have to tackle inequality and we have to find ways of creating real long-term well-being, right? I mean, and, and so we're trying to tell um, governments and statisticians, especially national statistical offices, why don't we identify critical measures that can tell us, for instance, what are the, net, the, the, the environmental costs of certain economic and productive systems? What is the impact that certain policies would have on households and, you know, the solidity of our families, if you will? What are the, you know, what type of employment do we want? Nowadays, the talk is just about jobs, jobs, jobs. But jobs don't tell us anything about decent work. Are we still considering that, sir, that what all people want is to be employed, per se, even though they, the conditions of employment may be close to slavery? So is that what we want just because it provides some income to, these, to, to, to our citizens, to ourselves, to our families? Of course not. We, we think that you know, sustainable jobs should be able to produce an income, but at the same time allow people to have a decent life. Otherwise, it wouldn't be seen as progress. So we're trying to convince statisticians to measure, to measure decent work rather than employment, unemployment per se, which is a very misleading uh, calculation, and so on and so forth. So if we manage to build a small dashboard of three or four critical indicators, those could easily replace GDP as the main drivers of our policies. You've spoken a lot. This seems what you're arguing for is a fundamental change with how government, society, the media understand what is good and what is bad so that there's more to life than just the GDP going up and unemployment figures going down. Is this something you can see happening or have seen that has started to happen? Look, it sounds very radical, but it's less radical than you think. Um, if we manage to rethink or redefine or even adjust in some cases the numbers that then we use to decide what is progress, what is development, and you know what is well-being, policies will gradually change accordingly. Now, you may think that this is a very radical agenda. The OECD, I um, challenge you to Google OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a highly conservative organization representing the most developed in GDP terms, the most developed countries around the world. Well, you know what they say on their on one of their pages? There is more to life than the, the crude GDP statistics. And they themselves have started a debate on what numbers we may need in order to build more sustainable, equitable, and, and just societies. That's the OECD. Even The Economist, the magazine The Economist, in 2010, published, had an online survey, and the vast majority majority of readers said that GDP was a very misleading measure of economic progress, let alone human and, and social well-being. So there is a growing, if you will, 
debate on the sustainability and the accuracy of GDP, of the GDP systems. Now, what we need to do is to sort of ride this uh, rising tide and make sure that the debate goes out of the small circles of experts and, if you will, progressive economists and progressive statisticians and becomes a societal debate. A lot of people believe the numbers are, you know, far away, complicated, um, complicated entities and there is really not really something um, captivating or, or important about numbers but numbers are part and parcel of our lives and if we let um, the technocrats choose the numbers that will then be used to design our lives whatever we say about democracy is empty because all our decisions will already been will have, will have already been taken you know if GDP drives our economies it doesn't really matter what we decide our politicians will continue doing whatever they can to increase GDP. If inflation calculations as if um, in terms of the consumer price index will continue telling us whether we're rich or not, it doesn't really matter what you and I think. Politicians will have to play within those boundaries decided by those numbers. We have to understand the politics of numbers to become really free and be able to build the type of societies we want in the 21st century. Lorenzo Fioramonti's book, How Numbers Rule the World, The Use and Abuse of Statistics in Global Politics, is published by Zen Media and is now available from all good bookshops. For more from Pod Academy, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at www.podacademy.org. We currently have programs on the death penalty in America, the ethics of drone strikes, and the history of populism. Thanks for listening.